You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90 Min, currently sponsored by our friends over at Pro Prep. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiu, and on this edition, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Mike Stavrou. How are you doing, sir? A very sad, Mike Stavrou. I feel like you need to get your sound effects back out, Harry, because if it if you did have them, <laughs> there'll be some somber music playing right now. Because yeah, uh, I've still not that. recovered. I need to get some sort of soundboard, I think, so that we can we can do things like yeah, that. Yeah, you're you're a DJ, man. You should you should know you should have this stuff sorted. You're right. I've been slacking. I've been slacking, but I've got to be honest, I'm not in the mood for anything at the moment because it's just been a really, really difficult kind of 24 hours as an Arsenal fan, you know, and, and to top it off, I was coming home from work this evening. I got absolutely soaked in the pissing rain. I got so soaked that my socks got wet through my trainers. It was an absolute bloody nightmare. And I was thinking about this podcast on the way home and thinking about what we were going to talk about. All of which, by the way, as a disclaimer, are depressing subjects. Mm. And then that happened. And, you know, I can't help but feel like this is the end of the world because every time Arsenal give us a kind of glimpse or a glimmer or a hope, we end up slipping back into this kind of zone again where, you know, it's just all doom and gloom and, and mm-hmm. Mikel Arteta's not the right man and the team are not good enough. And I think there's a, there's a bit of both. I think there's a lot of elements to this. And I don't think it's as simple as saying that he should be sacked now. I think if you've made up your mind that he's no longer the right man, I think that's a very valid view to have at this point. But I don't think it's that simple. So, Mike, first of all, before we go into um, the Mikel Arteta thing, I just want to bring up yeah. something because I've put in the title of this podcast, The Arteta Cycle, because it really does feel like there is a cycle with Mikel Arteta. And somebody sent this to me earlier on. Big shout out to Graham Brooks, um, who sent this to me earlier on. I know it's probably going around online, but I think this is so true. And The Arteta Cycle is is basically this. Arteta out, go on a decent run of form, then you start calling mid mid players world class. <laughs> then you get some hope about Arsenal getting back into Europe. Then we lose a few matches with poor performances. Everybody starts overreacting again. And it just goes round and around and around and around. Let's Before we go into kind of dissect and pull apart certain moments from the game mm. at Goodison Park, what was your overriding feeling coming away from it? Um, Depression. Is that a feeling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, just just um he said nah, it was very depressed. Yeah, no, nah, it was it was more anger than than anything because I think we needed a reaction from the United game. And I think this season, bar the first three games, we have been getting reactions after disappointing results. Uh like after after Liverpool, we we bounced back against Newcastle. Um, and we thought, you know, in the game against United when we were leading, um, you would have thought that we would get something from that game because we were at the time the better team, um, but we're rubbish when we're ahead. Um, so you thought after that game, after the disappointment of that game, because that was a big blow, just considering where United were at the stage, like in between managers, um, Michael Carrick was caretaker, you feel like we needed a reaction and you thought that Everton would be the absolute perfect opportunity because this is a team that hadn't won a game since September. The manager, um, you know, was, if if you listen to social media and and all the discourse over there, you'd think that he's getting sacked. So you you look at it and think, this is the perfect opportunity. Go there, react and get back on course because we could have shot up the table. We could have been, you know, within touching distance of West Ham. And then it's almost like all the problems go away a little bit but that's not what happened uh it was a pathetic pathetic performance um i thought everything was wrong from from the players sort of mentality to 
the tactics to the decisions from the manager. It was just all wrong. It was awful. Uh, I think that that's the worst loss we've had in a in a, in a while, probably since Brentford actually, um, when we were just blown away by a team that had just come up from the championship. Um, obviously, there's been bad results this season, but those two, Brentford and Everton, are the ones that stick in the mind. And for, for me, yeah, I think it's a bit annoying when people say, "Oh, um, you know, after you've lost, start calling out for for, for the manager's head." I don't think it is that. I think. Some people are firmly in the camp of they want Arteta out and he can do no wrong. And no matter what happens, nothing's going to change. Even if we go on a run and, you know, we manage to scrape top six, get close to top four, whatever happens, I think they will hate, they will dislike him. They will want him out. And then there's other people that just flip flop. And there are like after, after a result, after a bad result, they say, actually Arteta out. And then after a good run, they let Arteta in. But I think I think where I am, I've not called for the for the manager's head so far. Um, it, it was very tempting after after the Europa League thing, but I've not gone there. Um, but I think to sort of deny fans the opportunity to, to vent their frustrations after a pathetic loss like that, and back it up with saying you have to trust in the project. This is a young squad. Um, you know we're building for the future. It's very easy things to say, and I think for for us and for me, it gets boring hearing about that but my overriding feeling Harry is still anger like, I'm, I'm still angry about that because it was just so bad last night it was it was shocking and um I, I remember ringing my dad last night at half time when we were leading the game by a goal to nil and telling him this is as bad as I've seen Arsenal play in ages and it really mm. really was that the game in general was dross for long periods right it livened up, it sparked into life a little bit later on because Everton were at home and Everton were in the ascendancy. And I think just like what you saw at Anfield where the kind of crowd ignited off the back of that thing with Arteta and Klopp, you saw it happen at Goodison Park, but it was fueled by a kind of sense of injustice on behalf of the Everton fans, given that they'd had two goals correctly, by the way, ruled out. Um, but you have to learn to deal with that. You know, as a team that wants to be playing football at the highest level and competing for the biggest things, you're going to go to away grounds where there's a partisan crowd where it's difficult to handle. And the way we just fail to respond to that time and time again is is a cause for concern, among a number of other things that we're going to get into. But I asked Mike how you feel and how you felt off the back of that, what the overriding feeling was. And Michael's described this brilliantly in the chat. He says, inevitability is the feeling that he's kind of, you know, come away with off the back of the way that Arsenal crumbled and, and threw away yet another lead. Before we go into to kind of tear apart exactly what it is that we think went wrong, because there are a lot of things and it's probably going to take a lot of time. I do want to touch on the, the officiating though. And I want to mm. make it clear that this is not me excusing Arsenal's performance. This is not me um, trying to find a way out of this for Mikel Arteta, because as you're going to hear in a little bit, I think there were a number of things that he got horribly wrong. But you go away to a side like Everton, who are shot of confidence. If they get a man sent off in the first half, which should have been the case with Ben Goffrey, that kicks them even harder. That dents their confidence even more and that, in my opinion, gives Arsenal a greater chance of going on and winning the game. Now, again, not an excuse, and, and it's nothing to do with the performance. But we are in the Premier League, Mike. This is supposed to be the best league in the world. I would like somebody to explain to me how that decision has been, or, or how they've bottled making that decision. Because Godfrey has essentially stood on Takahiro Tomiyasu's face. Every pundit Every ex-player, every official that's come out and spoken about it in the aftermath has said that it looked intentional. They feel it was intentional. That kind of thing can't keep happening because we were denied what I felt was probably a penalty at Old Trafford as well. So it's not an excuse for Arsenal, but these little things are not going our way at the moment. And it feels like kind of everything's conspiring against us at this moment yeah. in time. I know we can only moan about, or, or we should only moan about what is within our control, but it is bloody frustrating when you know your team is not great. You need these little rubs of the green, don't you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was a horrendous tackle, like a lot of people have said. I think the VAR can just hide behind the, the wording of the law when they have to prove intent because there's no explicit, you know, he's not, I think some people argue that, that he looked at him and, but maybe he wasn't looking at him the entire time. But I think to everyone, and as you, as you say, all the pundits have said it, Gary Neville and Jamie Carrick at halftime, they are fellow professionals who had you know, a nasty streak in them at times. And they will know what is and what isn't intentional more than like us, more than us. So the fact that they're saying that tells me there was intent. And even just by looking at it, you can see, I think he's he had a look at, at Tommy Yasu. And just by the momentum of the player, when he sort of makes the challenge, he stood, after he's made the challenge, he stood upright. For him to then follow on and step on his face, there's anywhere he could have placed his boot. And it is just a ridiculous tackle. And if you needed any evidence at all, Harry, look at how Godfrey was playing for the entire game. Like, he was flying into tackles. Uh, there was a particularly nasty one with, with Saka, which he, which he got away with. It was consistent. So... That's what I don't understand about the decision. It's not like it's come from a player who's not really done much, you know, been sort of quiet on the periphery of the game. This is a guy who was playing out of position, knows that he's up against one of the best young wingers in, in the country, and he knows he's going to have to get extra physical because he can't match him for, for skill. He can't match him for pace. He knows he's going to get beaten. So what, what do you do? It's like when you're at, when you're at power league or five-a-side football, like you're a... You're, you're a rubbish defender. I'm, I'm talking from my perspective. I've never seen you on, on the pitch. But what do you do when you can't match someone, when someone's twining you up and has got the, the edge on you in every department? You rough them up. And that's exactly what Godfrey did. So the fact that the referee couldn't see that and couldn't notice that this guy is obviously intentionally trying to rough up players, that is what shocks me about this. And it's just like, what is the point of VAR if they're not telling Mike Dean to go look at that on, on the monitor. Like that's where the disgrace is, I think. If Mike Dean goes goes and looks at it and he can't, you know, he he basically says that he can't prove that there was intent. I mean, you have to sort of take that as a as a sort of judgment of the referee. We won't agree with it, but at least he's gone to, to have a look. But the fact they've not even recommended him to look is shirking responsibility to the highest degree. And as you say, I'm going on a rant about this, but it didn't affect the result. I think we we probably still would have struggled against 10 men, to be honest, because we were that bad going forward. But agreed. this sort of stuff needs to get sorted out. Yeah, agreed. And and again, I want to make that point clear, because I know there will be people, people that are always very critical of me who will say that I'm making an excuse. It's exactly, it's exactly the opposite here, but it's something that cannot go unmentioned because it's something we're seeing in this league time and time again, poor decisions. And, you know, maybe you can't prove the intent. I agree with you, Mike, that it's impossible to know what is in someone's mind. You could always make an argument one way or the other on something like that. But what about endangering an opponent? Mm -hmm. How is stepping on a player's face not endangering him? How is that something that's been allowed to happen in 2021? It's, it's absolute madness. And I think what we've seen this season kind of making a wider point is that there was supposed to be this added little bit of leniency, wasn't there? There was supposed to be this kind of new directive whereby they would try and let the game flow a little bit more. They would try not to nitpick so much because that was a consequence of when VAR first came in. It felt like everything was under the microscope and as a result, it affected and impacted the game as a spectacle. But now we've gone too far the other way. The balance is just not there. That for me is unforgivable and I cannot, cannot believe that he's been allowed to get away with that. And you make a great point, Mike, with regards to the way that Ben Godfrey played throughout the game. There was a horrible challenge from Gordon on uh, Nuno Tavares as well, which again went unpunished. And Everton were allowed to kick us off the park yesterday, which ultimately was their way of trying to compete with the side who have been in better form and who are a better side than them. So, yeah, it's... um. It's frustrating. It's not an excuse. It was worth talking about because I feel really strongly about it. But let's get into a little bit more about the Arsenal side of things. Actually, before we oh. do that, let me just take this. Um, he, he's, he huffs uh, in frustration. Let me just take this super chat from Prince. Uh, thank you so much, mate, for your very, very kind donation. He says he should have been booked. Yes, 
But Tomiyasu wasn't taken out of the game. It was not like a leg breaker. We cannot blame refs for rubbish performances. And look, we're not blaming the ref for Arsenal not winning the game or for Arsenal getting beaten. We're simply saying it's a that's as bad a challenge or as bad a refereeing decision, if you like, as I've seen in ages. It is that bad. We're talking about an absolute nonsense of a decision. And we're talking about it in the era and in the age of VAR where it simply shouldn't be happening. Let's move on. Um, let's start, Mike, with the team selection. I gave my thoughts on the team selection last night on the post-match reaction podcast. I'm not going to bore everybody by going over old ground, but I want to get your reaction, your take on it. Granite Xhaka walking straight back into the side after two months on the sidelines. Mm. That was a surprise, wasn't it? Yeah, massive. Um, I was working that day and um, when he dropped the sort of uh, Instagram post on, on his Instagram story saying, I'm back. I think everyone took it to mean he's back in the squad, which I guess was a surprise in terms of how quickly he was back from his initial diagnosis, because I think everyone said it was going to be New Year. So that that bit was a su surprise in itself. Um, but Mikel Arteta had spoken about it over the weekend and sort of hinted, you know, he's he's on the periphery, he's going to come back soon. So I sort of thought, okay, he might be back in the squad. But to start, I mean, that is insane. It, it literally is. For a player to come in who's completely cold, I mean, in, in, in one way, it's a testament to Xhaka and to say, you know, absolutely fair play. He must have been training hard. Arteta must have deemed him to be ready. But on the other, and the flip side of it, you've got to think like, there's, as you said in your podcast last night, there's no easy game in the Premier League. And I think, even though Everton were on a poor run, I think we were really underestimating our opponents to say, you know what, we've, we've had a guy out with a, um, a knee injury, a long-term knee injury. Let's just throw him straight back in. When actually Albert Sambi Lukonga, yeah, he's had a few dodgy moments this season, but on the whole, as a 21-year-old, he's been brilliant. And I think he definitely could have played in, in, in a game like that because what he gives you is that sort of calmness, that assurance on the ball and that ability to just move it quicker, which is which is what we need, which is what I think is one of the biggest problems in this team is that it takes so bloody long to play the ball through. We're fine from, from the back, but to play the ball through the midfield takes an age. And the fact that Thomas Partey has no confidence anymore and the, the ball was coming into him and he's losing it every every other time he's got it or he's he's flashing a pass that's that's going out of play or overhitting it, whatever it is, it's not happening. So to take out that sort of player there that can speed up the play, which is what we're missing so badly, I think was quite, was qu quite a big decision. Um, in in terms of the other team selection, I think Smith Rowe sort of forced um, Arteta's hand with Martinelli. I'm not sure he would have played; he, he would have started in that game if uh, if Smith Rowe was fit. Um, so that was fine. Um, benching Abamyang, I think was was the right call because he's been awful. But then again, like it's like as soon as you sort of take the pressure off Lacazette and say, "Look, look, start up front," it's like he just like like. I don't know, he implodes. I, I don't know what to describe that performance from Lacazette as. It was awful. I don't, I don't really know what he was doing. He was anonymous when he's usually not. So that was that was shocking. But in, in terms of the starting eleven, I would say Xhaka was the biggest surprise. Um, and Kirantini as well, because I have liked Nuno Tavares. I, and I know he does have his flaws, but he just offers you something a bit different. There's a bit, we've spoken about it before, there's a bit of unpredictability there, whereas you know, the one thing Tini's going to do is get the ball to his feet, knock it out wide and, and whip a ball in. And yes, it did work for the goal, but most of the time it, you know, it doesn't. So, yeah, I, I think surprised, um, but there's a lot more things in the game that we need to unpack that were much more shocking than the starting eleven. Yeah, completely agree. Just while we're on the subject of, of Lacazette, I saw this brilliant tweet earlier on uh, from James Benj where he said, I absolutely understand that Lacazette's willingness to drop deep can bring a lot to Arsenal's attack. On other nights, it's worked exceptionally. But if you're having more touches in the right back spot, as is highlighted on his touch map versus Everton, then you are inside the penalty area. Then you've probably gone too far. And I think this is I think this is absolutely spot on. I think we talk a lot about Alexander Lacazette and what he brings to the table in terms of 
the ability to drop a bit deeper, get more involved in the play, cause an overload in midfield that can see us sometimes be dominant there. You know, it's great. But what it means is when we do work the ball into wide areas, you're then relying, especially if we've worked it to the left with Kieran Tierney, you're then relying on Martinelli and Saka and everybody else in and around that vicinity to get into the penalty area. And for the goal, we did that. You know, the ball was worked out to Tierney on the left-hand side. Martinelli made a run across the near post. And there was um, there was Martin Odegaard following up on the edge of the penalty area, uh, making a late run into the box. And he turned it home. And at that point, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, we have been shit. We have been absolutely shit, but we're leading. And you look at it and you go, yeah. you know, you, you'll take it. Now we've got something to protect. Let's recognise that we are lucky to be in this position um, based on the way the game's gone. Let's defend it. Let's make sure we don't do anything stupid. But the fact that we can pick out the one moment where this pattern of play that Mikel Arteta appears to be insistent on worked is, is a clear kind of indicator of the fact that it's not happening often enough. You know, and, and that for me is a big, big worry. And there's no getting away from it. You know, we talked about the team selection there and, and I agree with you. There were elements to the team selection that I thought actually were quite sensible in, you know, when you kind of marry up to what the fans were asking for. Lots of people didn't want to see Aubameyang in the starting lineup after his last couple of performances. Lots of people wanted to see Kieran Tierney come back in instead of Nuno Tavares. But what was an excellent point that I heard earlier on that was made by uh, James on Gunner blog was this. We talk a lot about game management and how it's so important that Mikel Arteta gets that right. But in the decision to play Kieran Tierney, who you know has only probably got 60, 65 minutes in the tank, Alexander Lacazette, who's been the same recently, and Granit Xhaka, who's been out for three months, well, automatically, you know what your three subs are probably going to have to be. And before the game's even begun, you've limited yourself to being... You know, you've limited yourself in terms of the substitutions mm. that you can make. Therefore, you can bang on about game management all you like. But if you don't have players available or you definitely need to replace certain players, then it limits you what you can do and how you can react to certain situations. I think that's a, a massive point because Tierney went off. You know, then, of course, Martinelli went off and that's one injury. Bang, that takes out your whole plan. You know, one injury can mean that you've got to leave one of these three guys on the pitch. One of them, you know, has to play the entire 90 minutes, despite clearly not being up to it physically. It, it's it's mad. I didn't think, though, that Granit Xhaka was that bad. In fact, I didn't think he was bad at all. I thought, especially in the first half, he was probably Arsenal's best player. I thought in the second half, he tied, though. What did you make of his performance? I think more than his actual individual performance, Harry, um, I think he and the team were sort of hung out to dry by Arteta's selection. Uh, as you say, based on those points that he, he knew two of the substitutes he was going to have to make with Tierney and, and Lacazette because they, they just weren't weren't starting and they, they couldn't last, essentially. Um, and just this sort of thing that he's insistent on doing... Um, with Xhaka dropping back into a, a the left centre-back, left-back, whatever you want to call it, and then Tierney being like our only attacking foot. I thought we moved on from that. And really, like when, when Xhaka was at the team, I thought we I thought we played better. I know I know Lukonga has done that at times to, to cover for Tavares going forward, but it's not nearly as much. And what it does is just create a huge gap in the midfield. And it got exposed time and time again because party... Like, why would you put a guy who's got zero confidence to do about three jobs in midfield, which is essentially what he has to do when when Jack is in that left back position and we get we get caught? That that's what he has to, and that's why I think he's actually been performing worse. I think it's a, obviously, of course, he, his confidence is shot, but when you give the guy about two free players to mark, that's going to happen. He's going to get pulled left to right. He's not going to be able to cover. He's not going to be able to put in tackles because you've got to cover so much space. And I don't understand this tactical element that Mikel insists on, on, on deploying because you basically vacate the midfield and there was nothing there. Like for, for, for both goals, like Damari Gray has got the freedom of the pitch to cut inside. And why is that? 
it like yes, the defenders could have closed it down quicker. But at the end of the day, there should be two defensive midfielders if you're playing a four-two-three-one, occupying that space and and closing them down. Where were they? Like it's it's insane that we're two years into a project and that's not been picked up by the guy who learned off Pep Guardiola, one of the best tacticians, you know, ever. Like it's it it doesn't make sense to me. So as much as Xhaka, I don't think he was poor but I don't think he was great but it's just like I don't understand this like it doesn't make sense to me I'm maybe someone who's a tactical expert can explain it to me and explain why it works but for me like dropping him in there yes he helped with the build up but the fact that it creates such a gap and the fact that you know Kieran Tierney is our main attacking outlet still two years down the line oh mate I don't know what to say yeah, and, and you make some great points. And if we just share the tactics board briefly, I, I just kind of want to expand on that point a little bit about the the kind of um, the Xhaka role. And what you had when Lakonga was playing or Ainsley Maitland-Nars was playing was a midfield par uh, partner for Thomas Partey who would get close to him, who would try and be as close to him. And I think one of the things I pointed out actually in the Brighton game was that I felt that say this is Lakonga, he keep get he kept getting dragged out to these positions here because of Brighton's width with the wing backs. And often that left Thomas Partey alone, having to shuffle across into a more central position and having to hold the midfield down by himself. That's what Lakonga was doing. Xhaka does it in a slightly different way though. What Xhaka does is he doesn't drop or, or he doesn't shift to the left the way Lakonga was doing at Brighton. He actually drops into the left back hole, as you say, and Tierney bombs on. But as, as you so rightly pointed out, that leaves a gaping hole and a huge area in the middle of the park that Thomas Partey is then responsible for. And we've all kind of seen and understood in recent weeks that Thomas Partey, from a physical standpoint, is not at the races. He's not capable of doing that, maybe ever. You know, it's it's a position in which he's constantly exposed. And once you beat Thomas Partey, then you end up in a situation like the situation we had, um, you know, where Damari Gray is running at the defence. The centre-backs don't know whether to go and engage him or not. They don't know whether to back off him. They don't know whether to take their chances and let him get a shot off from the edge of the box. It's it's just chaos and pandemonium. And it feels like when you look at what Mikel Arteta has done in terms of this rebuild, if you like, He's focused so much on this back four. He's focused so much on trying to get that right. You know, this this group here. I mean, if you think about the investment that we've made since Mikel Arteta was given the manager's position, the majority of it's come in this area, Mike. Mm. Ramsdale, Gabriel, White, you know, um, Tommy Asu. But that doesn't mean jack shit if you can't progress the ball, if your midfield aren't good enough to protect, if your attack aren't potent enough to go and cause people problems. And I get the whole build from the back, build the defence first and then build the rest of the team. But any defence, if they're constantly getting attacked and their midfield is being bypassed and they're then able to or they then find themselves in situations where they're having to defend one-on-one, -on -one, they're having to step out of their tight, compact unit to engage people, it's a big, big problem. And, and one final point from a kind of tactical perspective, I don't know if you saw Monday Night Football last night, Mike, before the game actually started. Um, there was a lot of discussion about Ralph Ranić and Manchester United, which was incredibly frustrating because they spent the majority of the night talking about Manchester United in the lead-up to kick-off. But one of the things that Gary Neville highlighted as a difference and one of the reasons that he felt United were a lot more sturdy against Crystal Palace at the weekend was because their midfield pair of Fred and McTominay were really compact, were really close together. And were almost saying to opponents, you need to play around us. You're not going to play through us. And if you look at the nature of the goals Arsenal conceded yesterday, even the nature of the Richarlison goal that was ruled out, the second one, you're talking about us vacating the midfield, leaving one man to try and cope with everything because of this desperation to accommodate Kieran Tierney bombing forward. Kieran Tierney, who, by the way, put a good cross in for the goal, but really, apart from that, did nothing in that sense. You know, the reward is not worth the risk that we're taking at this moment in time. The midfield needs to be mm. more compact. 
It needs to be more rigid. And if you're telling me that we're going to be a defensive side, I'll accept that. But do it properly because we're not doing it properly. And we've abandoned some of the things that we saw as positives over the last few weeks going into this couple of games against United and Everton. We were starting games brilliantly. We were starting games like a house on fire. Yesterday, it looked like we hadn't gotten out of bed and it was 8 p.m. You know, and then you think about the way we've been pressing teams and trying to close people down. It's half-assed. It's not working. You can't do that with Granite Xhaka in the midfield. And and I've said this before. I do think Granite Xhaka gets a lot of shit. I do think a lot of the time he is made the scapegoat when the team as a whole aren't performing. But now do we abandon the system, the style that saw us go on that really good run just because Granite Xhaka's back? In which case, are you putting Granite Xhaka ahead of the team? That's where I'm starting to get to a place now where I feel like even Mikel Arteta's wires are crossed. We'll come on to talk about some more elements to the game because there is lots and lots to get into. But I just want to give you guys uh, a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by ProPrep, which is the perfect study tool for university students undertaking science, technology, engineering or maths related modules. And it can half your study time. ProPrep provides bite-sized videos relevant to the module or course, which can be accessed from any device at any time. It's already helped over half a million students to pass their exams. They provide customized STEM study tools that match your syllabus. Long lectures are condensed into short and clear video tutorials. And after the videos, you can go through what you've just learned with interactive exercises and practice questions. You can even submit uh, questions to the ProPrep professors who will send you a video back within 24 hours. ProPrep have made a special offer just for our listeners. All you need to do is click on the link in the description, uh, head over there, check it out. You can get more information and you can sign up to a a free 30-day trial without inputting any card details whatsoever. So head over, check out ProPrep. Might be good for, for family members, friends, whatever. Tell them about it. Support ProPrep. You're supporting the Chronicles of Aguna podcast too. Kieran Tierney, back in the side, obviously had a hand in the goal, a positive. He's got to last longer than 60 minutes now, hasn't he, Mike? I've got a little bit of a theory on why he came off yesterday, and I want to know what you think about it. I think that Mikel Arteta has been influenced, impacted, and this is, again, a sign of inexperience, by the noise from the outside about Arsenal sitting off of teams when they're in front. I think as a consequence of that, as a consequence of his desperation to get the team back up the pitch, because he was, you could see him on the sidelines yesterday, constantly urging them forward. He felt Mm. that Nuno Tavares would give us an outlet and allow us to do that, allow us to move further up the pitch. I think that's why he made that change. It proved to be the wrong change because defensively we were much worse off. Do you agree with that? Is is Kieran Tierney a concern for you? He's mm. he can't seem to stay fit, and when he is fit, i.e., available for selection, he can't last ninety minutes. So I I do like Tierney, but I think this is the injury thing has been a concern. And like you look back at it and you think, you know, why did we get him for that sort of money, like twenty five million for an up and coming, you know, Scotland international, one of the best, probably Celtic's best player at the time. And I think that's probably your answer because of his injury record, his fitness record. I think he gives absolutely all. And I think sometimes that is to his detriment because he puts in so much. He overextends himself so much. Maybe when he's not always 100% fit. I feel like he's one of these players. And, you know, players always come out and talk about the fact that they're playing through pain and they're operating at like 80%, 70% of full fitness because of the schedule, because of the intensity of the league. I feel like Tierney's probably someone that operates that slightly lower than the uh, than the average player. So he's always, it always seems like he's in the red zone and you're always worried like he's, he's going to break down and that's not what you want. It's really not. And I think that's one of the reasons why Arteta was so keen to improve that left-back position in, in terms of squad depth because he was worried about Tierney. And I think, the the sort of nightmares have, have been realized and yeah I, I am concerned because I feel like he he is a good player um but this system as we've mentioned is just not working and I think Tierney is adaptable enough to play 
a slightly different role as a more traditional fullback. But for whatever reason, uh, it's it, it's not happened so far. Um, but I feel like the the left back situation. If if anything, I I have liked Nuno, but I feel like maybe he's got a little bit. Um, I don't, I don't have to say it. Maybe a little bit like comfortable now Ahead because of himself, he's maybe. Yeah, I th- I think so because he, he he would have come in. You know, he's he's not got loads of experience of, of first team football. He would have expected to to sit there and wait for his chance and maybe wait six seven months and. He started well and he's bright, but I think the the number one thing about him is that he's raw. And the the fact that we talk about his unpredictability being one of his strengths, it's also one of his weaknesses because at the end of the day, like you want to know what you're going to get from your player when when you send them out. And as as much as unpredictability is good in the sense that the the your opponents don't really know how to handle you, it's not good for your teammates and it can't be good for you sometimes. And that was proved yesterday by the sort of mistakes, the sort of lackadaisical nature on the ball, like with the, with a throw in that led to the goal, like that stuff should not be happening. Like that is basic stuff. And I feel like Tierney does need to come back into the team in order to sort of say to Nuno, you know, you're you're a good player for the future. But right now this guy is 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 the, is the number one man. But obviously the, the big concern is his fitness. And I think that sort of is playing in Arteta's head a little bit and forcing his hand because he's like, all right, Nuno, I, I do like you and I like elements of your game, but essentially I need you because Tierney's not operating at, at full fitness. And that, it's going to be a big conundrum for him to solve moving forward. But personally, if, if Tierney can keep fit and we can keep building him up, I would, I would start him more, but just adjust his role slightly because I think... Nuno right now is not is not operating at at the highest level and I think he needs a sort of few games rest just to sort of say okay you've you've done really well but now's the time to let the sort of senior guy take over a little bit yeah and and to make it clear we're we're not having a go at Nuno you know we 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 very much recognized when he was brought in that he was going to play second fiddle to Kieran Tierney he came into the side got an opportunity surprised a lot of us with how well he took that opportunity and was allowed to stay in the side. And look, I thought that the decision at the time to keep him in after what happened at Liverpool was a good one from Mikel Arteta. He then probably had his best game in an Arsenal shirt against Newcastle the following week. And you're sitting there and you're going, well, this is the right thing. But as a manager, you've got to not get carried away. You've got to understand the players' limitations. And I'm not saying that Nuno was the reason that we lost, but the fact that Mikel Arteta yesterday made changes that directly impacted, I believe, on the result is something that he has to take responsibility for. And believe me, I, I'm not one to say this lightly. I have sat here on many episodes talking about how I think the substitution thing is made into a bigger deal than it actually is a lot of the time. You know, remember last season where we were struggling to score goals or struggling to break people down and everyone would go, oh, why didn't he bring Martinelli on as if that as if Gabriel Martinelli was Cristiano Ronaldo and was going to come on and win you every single game. So I think in the past, we have gone overboard on Mikel Arteta with his substitutions and some of the decisions Mm -hmm. he makes in-game. But yesterday, on Monday night, it was absolutely justified that people were upset, frustrated. And we've talked about the Tierney one. Um... You know, let's talk a little bit about the Eddie and Ketia one because that oh, for me was weird. I mean, I, I've said my piece on Eddie and Ketia, um, and, and I just want to reiterate the point once more that I don't question Eddie and Ketia's professionalism despite what's going on with his future. But can you explain to me, Mike, why Enketia, who isn't part of the future, is getting games in the first place? And on top of that, why is he getting games on the left wing? Uh, it's it's unexplainable um, because like you, like we've all heard that he's rejected the latest contract. He's, his current deal is up in the summer, um, which means that he's he's probably going to be... Go- <sighs> May I don't have the answer. Uh, if I can speculate, I will say that maybe he's trying to give him one last, one last chance to, to prove himself. And, you know, if he sort of puts in a few decent performances, he can maybe test them out up top because the the strikers aren't performing but to me that just doesn't make sense because it's a player that 
that that clearly looks like he's he's going to go regardless if he if if he gets a few games or not because I, ultimately I just think sadly and you know I, I do like Eddie but I just think he's not good enough like to to play up front I just don't think he has the the sort of credentials to to make that position his own I think he's probably more like suited to a lower more like a Newcastle or that that sort of level, like lower Premier League level. I just don't think he he will cut it with us. Um, so it doesn't make any sense putting him out on the left wing. He's like a poacher. Um, he's not got anything going for him on on the left. He's not really got the pace. The the trickery with the ball is not really there. And then you've got like Pepe sitting on the bench, um, and he's not coming on. I mean, there's a lot of things we need answers for already because we don't have them. Um, I, I don't expect Arteta to like tell us exactly why things happen and be, be honest if he even does try to explain. But there's a lot of dodgy decisions going on, I, I would say, you know, with with Falar and Balogun as well. Like, why has he not been like starting at every game in the EFL Cup? This is a player who's, you know, we bent over backwards to try and sign a new contract because he's the next big thing. Why is, why is he not been playing? Why why is he not on the bench instead of Eddie Nketiah, a player who looks likely to go? And the, I mean, I read stories the other day about that the Balogun's going to go out on loan. Well, why not just throw him on in, in a few games? I know he looked raw in the beginning of the season, but at the end of the day, like he started against Brentford and he probably shouldn't have because you, your your two main strikers were out and you threw him in at, at the deep end and he looked out of his depth, obviously, because he's never played in the in, in the Premier League, so it's just these baffling decisions that I, I don't understand, and he needs to answer to because as fans we're getting frustrated because when he first came in, he was quite open and honest, and I feel like that slowly over time has start it started to deteriorate, and he's put up this front where it's like, all right, I'm the manager, I make the decisions, you guys, are how not... dare you question me? Yeah, how dare you? Yeah, that's it. It, it does feel like that. And look, as as I said, and ha, like you said on the podcast, we don't expect him to come out and say, "This is why I did this," because that doesn't happen in football. But just a bit more clarity about where things are and, and needed, because there's so many things up in the air at the moment. Lacazette's contracts, um, Abamyang's future, Balogun and Ketia, like all these attacking players. Like, where where are they going to be? And we just have no idea what's what's going on essentially yeah and you know one of the things i I said on the pod and and to keep it on the theme of the kind of attacking players was it doesn't seem to matter who he selects it doesn't matter if it's a bamiang up front it doesn't matter if it's lacazette up front doesn't matter if it's swift row and saka doesn't matter if it's martinelli and saka doesn't matter if it's odegaard in behind it doesn't matter if emil smith row plays in behind you seem to see the same issues which indicate surely that there's something tactically missing from Arsenal as an attacking outfit. Is it that maybe we don't put enough emphasis on it? Is it that Mikel Arteta is too particular about what he wants from his attacking players? Because there is a type of Mikel Arteta goal. That goal that we scored was a Mikel Arteta goal at Everton. But you're kind of relying on that working every single time. Is it that there's no variety in our attacking play? Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think, look, I I, I wrote down before I came on today, the most worrying aspect for me out, out of everything is the fact that we're two years into the project and there's no coherent attacking plan apart from get the ball to Tierney and cross it in. And that is basic, basic stuff. The fact that, I feel like there's a bit of there's a bit of rigidity, you know, sort of drummed into these players. The fact that when you know Martinelli is sort of let loose, he's this sort of explosive player that 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 cuts in and you know takes players on, and then that's almost been coached out of him a little bit. I feel like he's not he's not got that license to just go and do what what he does best. And you know, I think in in a way I see where that's coming from because I think sometimes Martinelli can be a little bit unpredictable and can lose the ball and I I see that, but the fact that when you're making your players so rigid that there's that it doesn't allow them to be creative, I think that that's a real problem because essentially what you have is not enough attacking intelligence. I think in in the front line in in order to make these creative runs and you know open teams up that there's just no movement and the problem for me 
your your right variety, but also the fact that Odegaard has to drop so deep to, to to get on the ball, and he's our main creator. It just means that there's huge gaps throughout the team, and again, it stems back to, to what we said earlier that we're not progressing the ball through midfield. So by by the time it it gets to Odegaard, he's like sometimes behind like Party and Chaka, and it just it just doesn't work. And for me, that's the biggest problem because I don't see any attacking plan. I, I don't see creativity. And we're still talking. It's annoying, Harry, that we're still talking about this. Like, we should have seen an improvement by this stage. And it's just like, like, there's there's only one man to answer for that. Like, there's there's no other, there's no other thing because we, we've had different players. And as you say, different players play different positions, but it's still the same thing. So that is a coaching problem. Yeah, it, it does feel like there is a coaching problem, especially in the final third. I think going back to the point about being rigid and being disciplined in certain aspects of the game, I think you're right. I think we, we needed some more of that. We needed that. And that's why when Mikel Arteta first came in and we went to the FA Cup semi-final and then the FA Cup final and we looked very disciplined defensively and a couple of bits of individual brilliance went on to win us that trophy. You then look at it and you go, right, you know, this is something different. This is what we need. But there comes a point where the progression needs to be there, where the next level is, if not completely achieved, you need to be seen to be on the way there. And we don't seem to be on the way there because the same, as you say, defensive um, sort of rigidity is there. But in the final third and in the opposition half, we haven't got a clue. And I, I think that this is partly down to Mikel Arteta. I think it's partly down to the players not being good enough as well in a lot of areas inconsistent performances have, have been a problem. But just while we're on that particular subject, Martin Odegaard made a stupid mistake at Old Trafford, which cost us. And it's really difficult to kind of forgive him for that this soon after. But he scored two in two now. And both of those goals have come from him sort of arriving in the penalty box late and having the instinct to hang back and make sure that he gets himself into the right position. It, that's got to be, if if you're looking for a silver lining off the back of last night, the fact that Martin Odegaard has scored two and two and looks more of a, a, a danger, that's a positive, right? Yeah, that, that is a silver lining. And that's obviously like a play. Like that's obviously planned. Uh, he's been, he would have been doing that in trading and fair play. Maybe Tierney on the left isn't the only attacking plan we have. Maybe this is our our, our second one. But um, look, we're not talking about an, an embarrassment of riches here in, in, in terms of attacking tactics, are we really? But no, nah, f- fair play to Odegaard. I think that's when he's he's dangerous, when he can get in those positions where he's uh, he's getting beyond defenders and getting beyond midfielders rather than on the halfway line trying to hit diagonals that just aren't working. And, you know, pretty much relying on him as the as the sole creative output. So I hope that continues. Um, I just think we need a bit more consistency in, in, in other areas. And I know it's very easy to sort of um, blame the, the, the strike and the striking options. But at the end of the day, it, it does play a big part because when you don't have that sort of movement and when you don't have the hold up play, to, to be creative like Lacazette didn't produce yesterday and Aubameyang doesn't there needs to be one of the others essentially like you you even need to play as a as a hold-up play striker like Olivier Giroud who brings players who brings other players into play or you need to be a player that plays off the shoulder that for whatever reason Aubameyang's not doing at the moment and we haven't got either so that just puts a whole load of reliance on the players in behind him and that's why you've been seeing Smith Rowe, Saka score more this season, Odegaard, because the strikers not doing it essentially. So those guys have been filling in in between, picking up in the gaps and fair play to them for doing it. But they're young. They're not consistent. They're not going to do that every game. We miss Smith Rowe. Saka does not quite look fit. And that's the reason why in the last few games, it's not quite been happening. And I think over this run, the the sort of 10 game uh, unbeaten run we went on. Yes, we did improve slightly creatively, and obviously Smith Rowe was was pitching in with the goals. But I think one of the things where we where we did excel was that we just won the ball back quicker. There was intensity. We yeah. we pressed better, and for some reason that's gone again. And I I, I don't really know why. Like I, I know players have have, have changed. Abamyang's hit a, hit a bad patch, but I think that's where the mentality thing comes in. Um, 
And I was going to, I wanted to talk about this because it's got to be a mixture of tactics and a mental block that when we go ahead, everything just goes out the window. Is, is it complacency? Are we scared of losing? Um, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask you. I, I don't really know what happens when we when we go ahead. I think the 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 pragmatism or the additional pragmatism that Mikel Arteta has brought to the team since his arrival subconsciously makes people drop off. I think that it subconsciously has an impact on starting positions. It has an impact on how they see the finish line from where they are in certain game situations. But I also think that it is probably more mental than anything else. I mentioned a little bit earlier on, I thought that Mikel Arteta was doing everything within his power on the sidelines yesterday to get us squeezing up the pitch. I think that's largely why he took Kieran Tierney off. You know, maybe he was tired. Maybe he was felt a slight tweak. We don't know for sure. But it felt to me like a move from Mikel Arteta to try and counter the fact that we were sinking deeper and deeper and deeper and inviting Everton onto us. And that, for me, points in the direction of the mental fragility of the players. Now, I'm not saying Mikel Arteta escapes any, you know, responsibility for this. As a manager, it is your responsibility. If your team sit deep, you need to stop them doing that. You're on the sidelines. You need to make them push up the pitch. But I, I don't think it was a, a lack of him trying. I, I do think mentally we're in a space where we're a young side and we're a side that are still trying to find our way. I think the the unbeaten run led to confidence ending up up here because I don't think an inexperienced player necessarily has the ability to process a run of results like that for what it actually is. I think you can get carried away. I think mm -hmm. they felt too confident. And when they went to Anfield and essentially got slapped and came back down to earth, that was a hard come down. And against Newcastle United, they were dire. They were awful. We were at home. It was a game that you expected them to win. We won it. We won it quite comfortably. But then going to Old Trafford and losing again was another dent in the confidence, another kick in the balls. And these players are not at the stage in their careers, the majority of them anyway, where they're capable of putting these setbacks to one side quickly enough. And that's part of being a great player is to be able to bounce back immediately. We bounced back after Anfield, but we didn't bounce back after Old Trafford. And we're going to see on Saturday if we're going to bounce back after Goodison Park. But the longer this continues, the harder it is to bounce back from. So it's the mental side of it for me is huge. And it's something that you're going to have to put up with. But if your manager is also inexperienced in dealing with the mental elements of a defeat or a bad run of results, how is he supposed to pass that on to the players? How is he supposed to get that right message across? And how are the players supposed to look over at him and say, you know what, let's trust him, Mikel, because he's been there. He's done this. He's guided teams out of much more difficult periods than this. And he's still going. He's still standing. That experience and that know-how as a manager is not there. And people will say he's been a player and he played at a pretty high level, et cetera, et cetera. But those skills, they don't directly translate. It's one thing having to pick up yourself. And having to motivate yourself is another thing having to motivate a squad of 25 players, some of whom are probably quite unhappy with you because you're not playing. You're not playing them. You're not picking them. And and there are a lot of players there that they look indifferent. You know, Nicolas Pepe not getting a look in at the moment, as we've already discussed. How must he, what must he be thinking from the bench? I don't think he gives a shit. You know, that, that kind of character is not good to have around the dressing room, but Mikel Arteta has to take responsibility for creating these situations. Because for my money, there's no reason why Nicolas Pepe, a much more accomplished Premier League player than Eddie Nketiah, is, is sitting there in the cold with his jacket done up to his eyeballs and Eddie Nketiah is coming on and playing in a position that's alien to him. It's mm. A lot of these things are, I think, causing some players within the dressing room to look at Mikel and go, not sure about this. Yeah. And essentially, I'm not sure about you. What we'll do um, before we wrap up, uh, just a, a quick one. Get a couple of questions in the chat box. Chuck them in, put a queue at the beginning. We'll take a few of those. We've run well over, but we're going to keep going for a few more minutes because it's a great chat. Pop your questions in. We'll pick out a couple between now and the end of the show. But if you are watching us live on YouTube or watching this back on YouTube, then please do 
hit that like button. It really, really smash does it. help. Uh, so, yeah, please smash that like button. Subscribe to the channel if you're new as well. We've got 51 likes on the board. There's over 150 of you watching us live at the moment. There's no reason why we shouldn't get that up to 100. So uh, please do so. It really, really does help. Right, let's um, let's go over uh, to the chat box because um, there are some questions there already that have been coming in. Let me just uh, scroll back. There was a, a good one from Sam, which I'm just trying to find. Here it is. Sam says, if Arteta had have done what he's done for us at another club in Europe and we needed a manager, would we go anywhere near him, Mike? Um, no, but I think that's the sort of punt we took. We sort of took our chances on an unknown quantity, a guy that had obviously been at the club. Um, but that's just like saying, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer basically didn't have a CV. He was at Mulder, uh, Cardiff before United took a punt on him, you know, former player. It's a sort of similar situation. Um, but no, I, I think the answer to the question, uh, just quickly while on the, the subject of Arteta, I'm not going to say Arteta are in or Arteta are out because I find that discourse very, you know, boring um, because ultimately, no matter what we say, the border back in Arteta, we know that it's a long-term plan. I would just like to say from my perspective, I think what would be the ideal situation for me, we take it until the, the end of the season um, and, and we assess where we are, essentially. And then I think whether we're scrape top six or not, I think there needs to be a succession plan, whether it's then or whether it's slightly later. You're going to have managers available at that time, better managers, more experienced managers. Um, the one that popped into my head is Eric Ten Hag because he came out and said the other day he's ready for an, a new challenge at a, a big club. I'm not saying he will come to Arsenal because I think maybe his ambitions will be slightly higher. But that's the sort of manager that I think is will take us to the next step. That's not in, in the club's plans. I just want to put that out there. I don't think this will happen. But for me, I just think that's the calibre of sort of manager, the one who has a clear philosophy, um, an attacking philosophy that suits the club, um, a guy who's got a good track record, has, has taken Ajax you know, far in the Champions League. That's the sort of guy. Um, I, I know it's not going to happen. It's a bit of a pipe dream, but I just wanted to put that out there. So I'm not saying sack him, don't sack him. I just think the plan for what happens next needs to be put in place. So a lot of people have been asking me today. Uh, I was on a, we was filming Welcome to World Class with 90 Min, which we have to check out, by the way, from next week. Um, and, and all the guys, obviously, we have a lot of banter back and forward and we have a lot of discussions and we talk about Arsenal quite a bit, uh, even off camera. And a lot of them were asking me today, you know, do I want him sacked now? I'm at the point, Mike, and this is a little bit of a shift for me because last night was incredibly damaging, in my opinion. But the shift for me is this. Am I 100% sack him now, tomorrow? No, I'm not. Because I look at the next run of fixtures and, you know, I might have got the order muddled up here in my head as I'm about to reel it off. But it's Southampton at home, West Ham at home, Leeds away. Then it's Norwich at home. Uh, sorry, Norwich away and then Wolves at home. I think that's the, the next five fixtures. You could quite easily win four of those. And if you win four of those, the outlook, i.e. the table, could look very, very different. We we talk about the cycle thing and we keep going back mm. around in circles, but we're not good enough to be outstanding fifth place, i.e. we're going to get into fifth place now and we're going to stay there till the end of the season. There are going to be ups and downs because this team are not good enough. So I'm at a point where I'm not saying sack him now, sack him today, but I am as a football club on alert. And I'm scouring Europe and I'm keeping my ear close to the ground to understand yeah. what is going on. And if an opportunity comes along, like the one you've just mentioned, Eric Ten Hag, for example, then I'm making my move. And unfortunately, yeah. Mikel ends up being collateral damage to that because you have to put the club and the team first. That's where I'm at now. So uh, just to make that clear, I'm not saying sack him today. I'm not saying sack him tomorrow. But as a football club, we cannot once again pass up the opportunity to bring in a top quality manager because we have a blind faith in this project. 
Equally, if Mikel Arteta gets sacked, it doesn't mean that everything he's done is bad. No, it's, it's the same so. with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester yeah. United. He changed the culture at the club. He brought in some good players. He developed some good players. But what happened in the end was Man United got to the point where now people were expecting them to compete and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wasn't at that level. And so he moved on. But that doesn't undo all the brilliant work he did. Mm-hmm. And with Mikel Arteta, he's done a lot of good work. He's bombed out a lot of bad players. He has changed the culture in some ways. He has it, it, you know, brought young, fresh talent to the club. Ben White, Gabriel, Ramsdale, Tommy Asu. Uh, Smith Rowe signed a new contract. Saka signed a new contract. Martinelli signed a new contract. Tierney signed a new contract. All of those players have obviously at some point or another believed in what Mikel's doing and the direction in which the club's headed. So it's not all bad, but we might be coming to that point where he came in, he did the clear out, but beyond that, he might not be able to take us further. I think that's that's shown itself, Harry, to be honest. We, we, we need to do that where we stand on Arteta. And uh, we can properly get into it. But uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with, with what you say. Yeah, good stuff. Good way to end the show, I think, as well. Um, so we are going to leave it there. Remember, hit the like button if you haven't done so already. Let's get it up to 100 likes by the time the outro plays. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you're new. Leave us a comment, share your thoughts, uh, get involved. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with some more Arsenal and football-related content. Until next time, take care. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.